Okay, we are in, in, in the book of Luke. I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, written by, by, by Luke, in, in Acts chapter 27. And we had read last time about how they were about to set out from their, the next port here. And let's pick it up from verse 9, Acts 27, verse 9. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul, because the harbor was not suitable for wintering. The majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called an uh, Uraquilo, and when the ship was caught in it, and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda. And we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control, and having hoisted it up, they used supporting cables undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Cyritus, uh, they let down the, ship, the sea anchors, and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day they were violently storm-tossed and they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, for from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And when they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not in, have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God, uh, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul, but you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. Okay, so, they, were, they had uh, set aside, <clears throat> they had set out to leave their port and to go <clears throat> from, from uh, Sindis to a, a, a small port called Phoenix, because Sindis wasn't suitable for wintering in. And if you look on a map... You can see that Phoenix is right on, the, on this tip of the island, so it does face northwest and southwest, but it was more suitable for wintering. It is about 40 miles journey, so you figure about two hours normally in a ship like that to get there. But when they set out, it says that, that uh, um, uh, let's see, verse 11 but the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than what was, was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering in, the majority reached a decision. So this is in verse 12. So there was a majority decision, let's set out and let's move the boat 40 miles and winter there. 
So just because there's a majority decision doesn't mean it's the right decision. You know, somehow we get this sense in democratic society that whatever the majority agrees upon is the best thing. Well, not necessarily so. And so they set out, and all of a sudden, so, so at first, it says in verse 13, when a moderate south wind came, supposing they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor, sailing close along Crete. So something came up which made them feel that, okay, you know, obviously this was the right decision. And then all of a sudden, in verse 14, this Euroquillo comes and starts blowing them south. And so this, this, this was actually Paul's fourth shipwreck that he was about to be on. So, you know, you wonder if you really want to ride on a ship with Paul after, after how, how dangerous it is for, for, to be on a ship with him. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that next time as Paul recounts all the different situations that he's been in. But actually what happens here is this wind starts blowing them south, and in verse 16 they, they had trouble getting the ship's boat under control. So this is a small boat that's towed behind the major ship, and so that was getting waterlogged, so finally they had to bring it up onto the main ship. That's in verse 16. And then they used supporting cables, so they would, they would put ropes over the bow and then bring them up and tighten them around the ship just to hold the ship in place because it was being so, so storm-tossed. And the next day, in verse 18, they were violently storm-caught. I'm sorry, in verse 17, they threw out the sea anchors. Now, you know, I have this amazing distinction that when I was 12 years old, I passed the power, the power squadron boating course. At the time, I was the young, youngest person to ever pass this. But my dad had a boat, and, and uh, so we all as a family took this power squadron course, so we learned how to chart and the map. There was no thing as... as uh, as GPS, and so you, you ch- learn to chart from, from uh, buoy to buoy or from landmark to landmark. But one of the things I learned was actually like terms like the sea anchor. A sea anchor is just a bucket you throw over the stern of the boat and with a rope and you tie it up, and that creates drag on the, on the stern, on the rear side of the, of the boat. And what that does is that when all these waves are coming, the worst thing that can happen is for your boat to turn sideways relative to the waves, and then it just flips you over. So you have this drag on the, on the back of the boat that causes your back always to be toward the waves that are coming at you, so you, you don't broach, you don't flip over on your side. So this is what they're doing. Now remember, these are experienced sailors. And we learn later on in the chapter there were 276 people on board. There were 100 soldiers. You had the centurion and his 100. So that's, 200, that's 101. And then you had some number of prisoners, which was likely somewhere in the order of 100. And then you had 75, 76 um, uh, uh, sailors on board. So they're working very hard. And you see what's happening is they're getting storm-tossed and they're just being blown south. They start to throw tackle overboard because they want to lighten it up because they're afraid of running aground. So when you're afraid of running aground, you try to reduce the draft by throwing stuff overboard. So this is getting really serious. They saw, it says in verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And no small storm was assailing us. So for many days it was so cloudy, cloudy that they saw neither sun nor stars. This was a severe storm. And in verse 20 it says, so that our being saved, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. So little by little you're thinking, you know, we're going to see an island. We're gonna... After a while, everything was abandoned. And you would think that after Jesus himself had promised Paul that he was going to get to Rome and appear before Caesar, that 
God would have made a, a, a more comfortable way here. You can be very much called to serve the Lord, but that doesn't mean that every aspect of your life is going to be easy. And you can very much be walking in the will of God, but you can't assume that everything, therefore, is going to be easy for me. You know, pain and death and and loss of loved ones, all of these things happen to very fine believing people. This is not unusual. And if we gauge that God loves me by the circumstances in our lives, we're going to have a very storm-tossed relationship with our Heavenly Father. But the point that I want to stress today is this amazing point that I think is a tremendous lesson to hold on to. And that is in verse 21. When they had gone a long time without food, because they were so storm-tossed, they would never have a chance to stop and eat. Plus, you know, if you eat and you're being storm-tossed, you get sick. And it, Paul reminds them, he says, remember in verse 21, he says, you should have followed my advice and not have left Crete and incurred the damage or loss. He says, I just want you to remember, I was the guy, you know, the lone guy that was saying, don't do this. So he's just trying to build some credibility for his position. You know, I, I was the only one to vote not to go into to Iraq. You know, and so that looks really good if, you, if, if you're in, in, in the Senate or in Congress today to be the lone person who didn't vote that. You know, now it's like the worst thing to have voted for. And everybody said, well, at the time, it looked good. So anyway, he was the lone person not to vote for this. He says, yet now I urge you to keep your courage, for there will be no loss among you, but only of the ship. Here is a man standing up who himself is a prisoner, But he is urging them not to lose courage. Well, why can he do this? He says, for this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. An angel of the God. So he puts the definite article there. He doesn't say an angel of God. He says an angel of the God. Because he's talking to a lot of people who have pagan worship. But he's distinguishing from gods in general, your gods, to what he understands as the God. And so his context here is a little bit different when he speaks to them. He puts that definite article. He says, this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. So he spoke of the oneness of relationship that he had with his God. This is something that we have as believers. God is not a far off. God is not something that we're striving to get to. Jesus says when we believe... He enters our heart. The Holy Spirit comes within us. There is a closeness of relationship that we have that is not there in other faiths. He says, this God, to whom I belong, I belong to Him, and whom I serve, stood before me. God, in Jesus Christ, stood before Paul on that ship. So Jesus was on that ship with Paul. Jesus is with you on your storm-tossed journey. He is there standing with you. The scripture says, David said, Because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. This is a tremendous thing to get hold of in your mind and in your soul and in your spirit. That Jesus Christ is at your right hand. That when you are standing there and you've got to give this lecture and you feel like, "Ah, I'm only 21 and that's, practically 18, and that's practically a high school student, and I'm really too young for this. You remember that Jesus Christ is standing at your side. 
And this is what I often do. I have been in many situations where I felt inadequate for the situation. But in my own mind, I then get hold of it and I say, Jesus is standing at my side. You are at my right hand. I shall not be moved. And then I go out there with this tremendous strength. Because my spirit is just empowered because my Lord stands at my side. You will never feel adequate enough. You will always feel either too young for the task or too old for the task. You will never feel the right age. So this attitude of feeling inadequate. You will feel too tall or too short. You will feel too ugly or too something. Or too pretty. (laughs) You will feel inadequate for the task. This is normal, but remember, the Lord stands at your right hand. He says, he says uh, uh, in, verse, in, in verse 24, Do not be afraid, Paul. So, so this is what, what the Lord said to him, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And, and behold, God has granted you... All those who are sailing with you, therefore keep your courage, men, for I believe that God will will turn out exactly as I have told you. So what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said that you must stand before Caesar. Well, Jesus could have taken care of this. Remember Jonah and the, the whale comes or the sea monster comes and swallows Jonah and takes him to where he needs to be. And, you know, the heck with the folks on the ship. But then God calmed the storms and everything. God could have done that. Paul could have been thrown overboard the the, the, the whale comes, you know, takes Paul and drops him off on the shores of, of, of Rome. You know, on the shores of, of the Italian coast. God could have done that. But Paul says, he said he granted me all of you as well. All of you have been granted to me. So what does that mean? Paul was probably praying for them. What do you mean they've been granted to me? I don't want them, Lord. No, he grants us something that we ask for. Paul had been praying for them and for their safety, and so the Lord comes, I grant them to you. He says, but, and then he says in verse 26, but we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul didn't know the name of the island. All that Jesus told him is, you're going to get through this, but you must, must run aground. And he says, you're going to lose the ship, but the, life, the lives will be with you. So, so um, uh, in verse 25, here's what he says. He says, therefore, Keep your courage, men, for I believe that it will turn out exactly as you've been told. Therefore, keep your courage, men. Now, why should these men care what Paul, this Hebrew, this Jew, these are all pagans, they have their own gods. Why should they care what one man is saying who has some foreign god to them? Why should it matter to them? As Andrew Jackson said, One man of courage is a majority. But not only that, when we have the faith of the Lord, that faith can be a tremendous help to people that don't even know the Lord in times of dire situations for them. So you can have some cocky friends that have, you know, some attitudes and some feelings about certain things, and it means... You know, the Lord, it means absolutely nothing. But when they undergo great loss in their lives, loss of a spouse, loss of a child, all of a sudden, there's an opportunity to begin to comfort them. 
You speak the words of the Lord. That is an enormous comfort to people. These men are in dire straits. These are professional sailors. It takes a lot to get them scared. But when they're throwing the ship's tackle overboard, they're really scared. Fourteen days, they're storm-tossed. Ultimately, it, it, it later on says that, that, that ultimately they went 14 days before they ran aground. Remember, they wanted to go 40 miles. They end up going 476 miles before they hit Malta. So they are storm-tossed for a long time. We don't know exactly how many days it was, for it just says in verse 20, for many days. We don't know how many of the 14 in total it was when Paul first said this statement. But he has their attention now. One man, one woman can have a tremendous influence if you know the Lord. Now, there are generals, for example, that don't know the Lord that can have a tremendous impact. A person can, you know, just get their courage up and pump their fist and encourage a whole group. That happens. How much more when a person goes with the confidence of the Scriptures behind them? With the confidence of the appearance of God behind them. I know that the world is not going to end by an act of terrorism. I know that. I know that the world is not going to end by a flood. Because the Bible is quite specific. The world is going to end being burned by fire, it says. Where the elements themselves will burn. Well, maybe that means a nuclear thing that's set off by a terrorist. I don't know. It sounds like it. You could burn up the elements themselves. But you know certain things because of the Scriptures that you can rely on. You know certain things that have to take place before the end comes. And it is tremendous to be able to speak into people's lives with courage. And as a believer, you can do that. You can do that. I want to look at, at, at David. Look in, in uh, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. This book of 1 Samuel, chapter 30. Now, at this point, David is quite a young man. He's maybe, maybe mid-twenties. So he's not that old. So 1 Samuel chapter 30. He has with him around 600 men that are following him. They're not great men. It says all those who were in distress, all those who were downcast, all of those who were in debt came to David and he became captain over them. Now, what do we do? We like to recruit good students. You don't want students that are depressed, that are downcast, that are discouraged and in debt. Because all they do is they come to you and complain. You know, we want, you know, we want good troops. This is all David got. Was it says 600 men came to him and he became all of a sudden captain over them. And so he is captain over them. And, and at one point... They have to leave their families in a certain area and they have to go out and do some business and they come back and the Amalekites have attacked and their families have all been taken away. And look what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 30, reading from verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it both small and great, without killing anyone, carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept. 
<clears throat> until there was no strength in them to eat. Now David's two wives had been taken <clears throat> captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, because each, each one because his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. <clears throat> okay, so what's the situation? David's got 600 men. Remember, they're not great men. They're just complainers. You know, if you ever work with complaining people, you know how frustrating it is. The thing you want to do, they complain and they speak the negative side. I'm like, would you just be quiet? Just be quiet. I know what I'm doing. Just quit complaining all the time. And so, they, they come back and their wives and their children, their sons, their daughters, they're all taken. Everything is gone from the camp because the men had to go out and do something. Now, imagine losing one's wife. So, Scott, imagine losing your wife. So people come, you come home and your wife is gone. She's been taken off by, you know, someone's come and invaded your apartment and she's gone. Would that bother you? Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, upsetting now. And they don't know where. But for David, it was twice as upsetting because he lost two wives. <laughs> this, is, this is a frustrating thing. Everything is gone. Now, these men, these 600 men, are thinking of stoning David. That means taking big stones, not little rocks, little pebbles, and big rocks, and throwing them at David till he dies. Because they're so upset. You know, if, if you hadn't have told us to go out on this mission, we'd have been here to protect them. And so David has to deal with the loss of his whole family, the loss of everything he had, and all of these men that are against him now, and he's only about 25 years old, maybe 22. This is a big problem. And, you know, these aren't just little high schoolers that, that are against him. These are real men, you know, the guys, they've they got, they got hairy arms and the hair on the back of their hands, and, and, you know, burly guys and gruff, and they use bad language, and, and they chew tobacco, and they... they <laughs> these are mean guys. And he's a young guy leading all of them. One day, you will be in leadership with people that are much older than you. And it says that David was in distress too. And the people, it, and, it, and it says that they lifted up their voices and they wept until they couldn't even weep anymore. I mean, this is a huge loss. There was an entire army of people that had taken their, their family away. It wasn't like you can just go and get them back. I mean, you're only 600 men, and you're not trained soldiers either. And so, it says, though, in, in, in verse 6, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is so powerful. As believers, to be able to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. Hear me on this. You must learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. What does that mean? It means you get alone, you fall on your knees, and you say, God, help me. I cannot do this. Have mercy on me and help me. 
And begin to let Him minister to you and say, Lord, speak to me from the Scriptures and encourage me. Paul was praying. Jesus appeared to him on that ship and he said, Paul, take courage. Paul could rise up from that being a prisoner, a nobody on this ship. A hundred soldiers. He's a nobody. He's not a sailor. He's nothing. And he says, men, take courage. You can be that representative of the Lord's strength. I have seen this many times in my life. I have felt totally inadequate for the situations that I have been in. And I have gotten before the Lord in the morning, going before the Lord, feeling like a mouse and coming out like a roaring lion where nothing will get in my way. Because I feel that the Lord has empowered me, encouraged me, and I go out and I just speak this forth to people and all of a sudden... They take courage. They take courage. I speak this to unbelievers. I speak this to graduate students, to colleagues. They say, it's going to be okay. We're going to be all right. We're going to do this and this and this, and it's going to be all right. And all of a sudden, the world starts coming, saying, okay. Okay here, there's a voice of reason. You can do this. You will be in positions of leadership. And the more you learn to yield to the Holy Spirit of God to fill you like this, like David was filled, the more He will bring you into leadership. Because Jesus said to the man who hid his gift, if you had only used it, but to the men who use their talents, He says, good, I'm going to give you more. It almost seems not fair. But if you use your talents, He says, good, you're getting more. If He gives you talents and you do not use them, you lose even what little you had. You say, that's not fair, too bad, that's the way God has ordained it. Complain to Him if you don't like it. There, he was not the great equalizer where everybody's going to get the same. They're all going to be the same. You've got a lot you share with Him. No, you don't use what you have, you lose it. And in fact, He didn't just say you lose it to the one who didn't use his talents. You know what He said to him? He said, take this worthless fellow and throw him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. No redistribution of wealth there. There was none. To him who used what he had, he gave more. That is exactly what Jesus did. David used this talent. And that's why Paul said later on to David, I took you from being a shepherd over sheep. And David served faithfully as a shepherd over sheep. He always left his sheep. If he had to leave his sheep, it was in the care of a guardian. And he protected the sheep to being a leader over my people Israel. But it wasn't immediately over Israel. It was first over a band of 600 hard-to-deal-with men who couldn't get along anywhere else in life. And he said, you become captain over them. And then he took them so that they would oppose him. And David showed his true colors here. And he ends up going and he ends up chasing down these, these, these uh, uh, Amalekites and he goes and he conquers them and he gets back everything. It is a wonderful story. But God can do this in your life and you will have opportunities, I assure you, where the world around you is feeling so beat up. I know after 9-11, I mean, so many students were just devastated. You know, what's life going to be like? Are there ever going to get are there ever gonna be jobs again? Da, 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 da. You speak a word of encouragement. This is not the end. We are going to do just fine. It is not the end. There are things that come up in life where God has called and ordained you as a believer to be the one to stand up 
and to say, the Lord has strengthened me. And then after this, in verse 6, it says, in verse 7, then David, of, of 1 Samuel 30, then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I pursue the band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So David goes then with 600 of his men. It says in verse uh, uh, 9, So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, and, uh, where those left behind remained, and David pursued he and 400 men. For 200 men were too exhausted to go to cross the brook Besor, and they remained behind. So he started with 600. Now he goes down to 400. Because 200 are too, too tired. Now when they go and they conquer, the 400 men who were with him don't want to share any of the spoils with the 200 that didn't have enough strength. They said, just give them their wives and their kids and just let them go into the wilderness. We want no part of them. They didn't come and fight this thing. Verse 22 of that same chapter. It says, Then all the wicked and worthless men who went with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil." that we have recovered, except to every man, his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. And then David said, you must not do so, my brothers. And what the Lord has given us, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band of those who are against us? And who will listen to you in this matter? For as he, for as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. So it shall be from that. So it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So you see that David. What happens is after you've had some great thing where you've stood up and something has happened. You know what our first thought is to become cocky and to say, you know, we're going to do it. This is our attitude because our attitudes utterly stink. And so these, it says, of these, there were 400 men that had gone with David, and it says they were, they were wicked and worthless fellows. These are the people that, you know, this is what composed David's army. They were wicked and worthless fellows. And David turns to them and he says to them, my brothers. So he doesn't turn to them and say, you stinking worthless people. He says, my brothers, don't do this. Don't just give them their wives and their children. They will share alike with us. They stayed with the baggage. They were just too worn out to go. They couldn't run anymore. They couldn't chase after this army anymore. So humility after the conquering is so important. And that's what David had. He had the humility in it. And he established it and an ordinance that it remained to that day. So you see that this was written sometime after the event. But the attitude that we see in Scripture to be able to stand up and encourage other people in the Lord and to walk in humility to realize that it was the Lord that delivered us. It wasn't because I was the one who stood courageously. The very courage you have came not from yourself, but from the Lord. You will be cast into positions as fathers, as mothers, to show strength and endurance for your spouse, to show strength and endurance for your children. As workers in a company, as engineers, as CEOs, as CFOs in positions where you are going to have to show courage. 
And you can strengthen yourself in the Lord. You strengthen yourself in the Lord and it will have a huge impact on uniting people around you. And in the time when the world is most desperate is the time that you can speak out courageously and say, look, it is not the end. I understand the end because the Scriptures well define it. This is not the end. The Lord will see us through this. And all of a sudden, unbelievers who have no regard for the Bible will start following your way and be encouraged. And you stand up and say, take courage. You get your courage from the Lord and you transfer, transfer that to the world. This is what the Lord calls you to. And then walk in humility. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. For the life of Paul, who could cry out for those around him, not just for his own physical salvation, but for every one of those who were with him. And it was so granted. Thank You, Lord, for His courage. Teach us to draw strength from You and to display courage. And Father, teach us to be like David to encourage ourselves in the Lord, to learn how to do that. Father, I pray for these young people that You would teach them to draw strength from You, to draw courage from You. Father, I pray that they would draw courage from You. In the name of Jesus, they would learn to do this and cry out to You for strength and then inquire of God, what shall I do? that they would learn to submit to You and hear from You as to what they should do. And Lord, Lord, that they would learn in their lives to recover, to recover, and to be the one who stands to encourage others. Father, take these young people, I pray, and make them leaders. And may they take the talents that You have so given them and use them, lest they lose them. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.